five years. What does that look like? Or five years from now? I posed this question last week, and I'll remind you of that question. We, we talked about this idea that if the next five years you lay out goals, accomplishments, what those things would look like, typically we'll go right to things like, you know, paying off debt or, you know, a certain home or a certain car or maybe somewhere career-wise or for those who have maybe getting married or maybe if you're married, having kids, whatever that may be. But the, the question I pose, and I think Paul is really asking us, is where, where's our relationship with God and all that? In other words, where are we going to be at in our relationship with God five years from now? So I really ask you to think about that, think through that. I'm going to review a little bit from last week, and then we'll head into the text this week. By the way, before we head into the text this week, if, if this book was a meal, what we're about to tackle this Sunday is really the filet mignon, okay? It's the centerpiece of this book. It really, it's really lays out the gospel, encompasses the gospel very clearly. And if you're not a meat eater, I'm so sorry. Maybe it's a roasted eggplant, okay, for you. But it is a, it is a centerpiece of this book. So we talked about last week this big idea. We said this, that it's Paul's prayer and confidence that God will bring about a joy-filled life that is worthy of the gospel in, a believer, in, in the believers at Philippi. And we talked about Philippi being this mini Rome, if you will, pretty much all the things that Rome had on a mini level, and also the fact that there were a lot of retired military there. They lived, uh, they were a strong presence of natural, uh, uh, national patriotism there. And of course, both those and those people that were maybe uh, former athletes or people that understood the Roman culture. Again, it was a place where a lot of people retired and went there. And so this is really, in lots of ways, a very dark place, a place that's very uh, culturally uh, acceptable of everything that the, the, the culture had to offer and very rooted um, in this idea of the Romans and Roman Empire and that understanding of that. So Paul really talks about several things throughout this book. One, he hits on the selflessness rooted in the gospel. Another thing he hits on is this idea that we as believers, we'll talk about this this week, that we're to work out our salvation. There is this work involved in the gospel and the advancing of God's kingdom. And then ultimately this idea of the crucial place of joy in the Christian walk. And we said that joy or rejoice is mentioned about 16 times in this book. And again, we hit on this fact that they're so easy in this world to get discouraged. I don't know about you, but it can happen any moment for me. I can get discouraged. At one moment, I feel like things are going well. And the next moment, it could be just about anything that derails us, right, and gets discouraged. And the great thing about this letter is it really hits that head on and, and saying, where do you find your security? Where do you find your hope? Where do you find your encouragement? And all those should be in the gospel and in Christ. So I'm going to read, I'm actually back up a little bit and read the last couple of verses of chapter one because it just flows into this section. If you didn't know it, uh, the Bible wasn't laid out by chapter and verses when it was written. It was just written as letters, primarily um, prose discord, uh, history, and then uh, they put it together so uh, we could easily find things. So here we go. Ready? Philippians 1.27, and I'll read down to 2.18. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, 
I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Complete my joy. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not Run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. God, it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, I pray you'll penetrate our minds and our hearts. And God, I pray that it will take root this morning and give forth fruit. Um, God, that lasts for eternity. God, you're so good and gracious to us. God, help your word to be proclaimed. God, help me to die and for you to increase. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, the big idea today is this. As new citizens of God's kingdom... We should live out our lives as humble, self-sacrificing servants, just as our Savior and King lived out his life. So one of the things that I think miss many times in the church and teaching from the Word of God is this idea when Jesus came, he talked about the kingdom of God. There's a lot of kingdom language. And so we, we, we talk sometimes churchy words, but we don't really 
project what the gospel is really about. God is about bringing his kingdom here on earth. He's about restoring what was broken. And so this idea of the kingdom is all through this text. It's this idea that God is coming and has come through Jesus and is restoring his kingdom. And so when we think about this, we need to think about it in that sense that there is a kingdom that has, was broken and Jesus, through his work, his, his finished work on the cross, through his life, his death, his burial and resurrection, has restored the kingdom and now the kingdom is being advanced. That's why we talk about kingdom language in our vision. Is this idea that we're advancing God's kingdom. We're a part of the gospel. And so what we see in here is this idea of this new citizenship or citizenship language. Because when it says here, only let your manner of life be worthy, it's really this idea is live as citizens. And as I mentioned early, Philippi was a, a place where, uh, again, it was like a mini Rome. It had all the pleasures of Rome, but also a lot of soldiers and, and, and they would be well known uh, with the athletic games. And so Paul uses this language in this, this, this idea of a soldier, this idea of an athlete over and over through this passage. And he says this in verse 27, it says, again, this manner of life. Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So in other words, our churches should be like little outposts, if you will. In other words, our church should be a little slice of heaven. We should make everyone feel welcome. We should love them. We should speak truth to them, speak, speak with truth and grace, and share the gospel with them and be this kind of church that lives like Jesus lived because Jesus brought his kingdom here on earth. We should be like that. And so this understanding is, think about it this way. Think about if you lived in a third world country and you live where the government was completely broken, and all that ruled was um, power and, and killing and raping and stealing, and it was just doggy dog chaos, like many countries are, by the way. And then you were given this great opportunity to be a part of a new kingdom, a, a new heritage, a new city, or, or a new state, or a new country where there was a king who ruled and reigned, and he brought justice, and he brought love, right? And he brought liberty and life. This, is, this mentality is that we went from this old kingdom of darkness where our flesh ruled, and we were just subject to whatever Satan wanted for us. We were literally uh, we were children of wrath, and now we've been brought to this beautiful light. And so this is the language that Paul is using understanding that we're given this new citizenship in Christ. And so he says in this that we need to be in one spirit and one mind. There's a, a formation that the Roman soldiers used. It was a phalanx, okay? I think that's how you pronounce it. And it's, it was this idea that the, the soldiers would form a group and they would hold these shields and they would have this short sword, okay? Almost a little bit bigger than a dagger, and they would form basically this complete sealed, almost like a turtle shell, if you imagine, right, with these shields. And they would advance forward going, working as one. Think about it almost like a, a, an older tank. But that was like the mentality is that they would just roll into a place and they'd be completely protected. If something got through, they would pull the wounded out and then they would replace them to the next. And literally, there's some great scenes out of a movie called 300. 
And there's also a, a movie uh, called Risen that you see this at the beginning of this, uh, the, the movie where they're, they're advancing on these people. And as they're advancing, they're moving with this formation. And this is what Paul is saying. As the church, as believers, again, he's talking in the context of community. We should be striving together. We should have one mind. We should form this formation where we're all one mind and one spirit. Advancing God's kingdom. And not with fear, but having a spirit of fearlessness. Because he says in this, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, I know we talked about in Galatians that the opponents were these Judaizers, right? Who were basically mixing the gospel and it was turning out not to be the gospel. They were Jesus plus something, right? But here in Philippi, it's just really the culture. So it's this very um, culture that is everything but Jesus. Uh, I was just talking to someone recently and just fact in the hallway and we were talking about Colorado and my, my wife and I are going to be going there in, in a few weeks. And and I remember going to kind of southwest Colorado, and I remember going through this little town, and it was a very spiritual town. It was pretty much everything but Jesus. And this is what you see in the culture there. It's pretty much any God except for Jesus. And so this is what, this is what Paul's saying is that we need to advance the kingdom with one spirit and one mind. And so as citizens of God's kingdom, we are like soldiers. We are like soldiers. Now, it's interesting to me that the soldiers and the athlete that Paul uses as a reference here, he doesn't literally say the word, but the language he's using is portraying that. And so it's interesting to me that both of them have to have deep amount of discipline in their life. Deep amount. There's a, there's a proverb that I put to memory. It's Proverbs 5 at the end of that. I think it's 20, 21, 22. And it says this. That a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline. I think a big part of living the life that God's called us to live is this idea of discipline. And so Paul really talks about this idea of that we're both united, both in the gospel and for the gospel. So God has called us to advance the gospel And this is what he's talking to the church at Philippi. In fact, Galatians 6, 13 says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Many times the hardest thing about just walking in the faith is just holding tight, right? Not giving up, not backing down, not giving an inch like those Roman soldiers If they would give an inch, it would take a mile, right? And so there's this idea of standing firm. And I think Paul is reminding us this, that one, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. We're we're in warfare, guys. There is no doubt about it. We see it all around us. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the lives of others. Listen, the enemy is coming to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to do everything he can to warp the image of God, his church, and effectiveness of the kingdom. And so he is on the prowl. The other thing is we're reminded here that Paul is saying, but we're not on our own. One, we have the spirit of the living God. Well, we read that, but we'll, we'll hit that in just a moment. We have Christ and we also have each other. We have the church. We're, we're not alone. And so we should not be trying to do life by ourselves. We definitely should not be doing the walk um, by ourselves, the walk of faith. And so we also need to realize this, as Paul is reminding us in this text, that 
we should not fight each other, but we should march along or walk alongside each other. Think about it um, where the game when you were a kid and you locked arms, right? Remember the game where you call somebody's name over? What's the name of that game? Red Rover, thank you. And so when you lock arms, a lot of people have gotten hurt in that game. I don't think they would let you play it at school anymore, but, um, which is crazy because think about all the great uh, playground toys that they have gotten rid of, right? I think about like the merry-go-round, yeah, a lot of people got hurt on that, right? Uh, but when Red Rover is this idea of locking arms, right? And you, you would always try to go for the weakest spot to get through, right? But, but it's this idea that we're to lock arms. And we'll talk about this in just a moment, this, this word of koinonia or fellowship, participation, partnership. But it's this locking of arms with one another and to lo- walk along each other's side for the sake of the kingdom, the sake of the gospel. And so... This idea of striving side by side. And so the second thing about this idea of the uh, citizens of the kingdom of God is as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are like athletes. This, this language really tends to uh, portray this idea of wrestling, but not wrestling with individuals, wrestling almost as a group. So th- think about it maybe like I never played rugby, but maybe that, that game or for me more familiar would be the game of football because I, I played a lot of years of that. And uh, it's this idea of, 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 if you will, battling against. We, we know most games, we love the quarterbacks, love the receivers, right? We, we love the, the uh, defensive ends or cornerbacks or whatever. Those are the higher-priced players. But you know who, where the game's lost or won, right? It's in the trenches, right? That's the battle place. And so it's this idea that it's this wrestling back and forth. And so it, Paul is really describing this idea as, as the citizens of the kingdom of God, we are like athletes. Uh, I remember this guy that, his name was Mike Brown, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, played at college uh, level and played uh, Division three football. And him and I came in a year apart. He was a year ahead, of my, a year ahead of me, and he played tight end. And he was kind of a thin tight end, but he was like one of these wiry guys that he had surprising strength. He was probably about 6'4", 6'5", probably about, I don't know, 230 pounds or so. So, but he was super lean, right? And he's just tenacious. Well, I played a, a position when I first went in was, a, they called it a monster or strong safety. And so I would go up him uh, against him a lot. I would kind of go up to the line of a certain formation. And so he played offense. I played defense. Usually in college, you didn't go both ways. So defense was my side of the ball. And so I remember those first few months that we played together, I mean, we went at each other. I mean, we got to a point we didn't like each other very, very much. In fact, I remember this moment in practice. Uh, we had a coach. His name was Coach Gennaro. And he was a little Italian guy, man. He was feisty and a great coach. But he, uh, we went at it. Mike and I, I mean, we had each other's face masks. Please pardon me. I'm, I know you may view me as a pastor, but I can get, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, it, it, him, him and I had each other's face masks. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And we were just going at it like two hockey players, right? I mean, it was stupid because we had helmets on and pads, but we were angry. And so coaches said, just go run. So that was always the solution. By the way, parents, that's a great idea. If your kid's misbehaving, just tell them to go run because it worked out great for me as an athlete. I, I hated running, so uh, at least doing laps around the field. So anyway, we would run. And what happened was over those times, we would, we would run around the field. And Mike and I began to understand we were a lot alike. 
and that if we, if we played in such a way that made each other better but not hated each other, we could actually make each other a better team, right? And so that became almost like an affectionate thing for us to run laps, but then we realized that it wasn't about hurting each other. It wasn't about competing against each other. It was about complimenting each other. And so I think in the church, many times we don't get it that we're different, and sometimes we're even on different sides of the ball, so to speak, and we have different ca- uh, talents and abilities, but we're there to sharpen each other, right? Not to be each other's enemies. And so it's this idea that we're to strive as athletes, to, we're to wrestle, if you will, but our wrestle is not against each other, it's against the rulers, against authorities, the principalities, against the culture. And so this idea that we're to advance the kingdom in grace and truth, and that's how uh, Paul is describing it here. And then he goes on to say this idea in verses 28 through 30, this idea of suffering. And suffering, not, he says here that, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I think many times we get this idea of suffering really mixed up. We don't realize that really is full citizens involved in the grace of believing and also the grace of suffering together in the cause of Christ. In other words, Many times we look at suffering as something that God doesn't like us or doesn't love us. And many times it's a signal that he does, that he does. And so when we go through hard times, when we go through trials, many times God's using that to perfect us. And we need to embrace just as Christ came and laid down his life and suffered and died. Not that our, not that our suffering is redemptive in nature in that sense. He cr- Christ died for redeeming us back, but we identify ourselves with the suffering of Christ through the cross. And so Paul's reminded us that we're going to go through sufferings at times in life, and there's going to be times where we need to rejoice in that because God's using it to shape us to be more like his son. And then we see verses uh, 1 through 4 in chapter 2, and he talks about there, if there... Now, that phrase there, if there, in any encouragement, it really should be since. He's not questioning, is there? He's actually saying, since this has happened. It's kind of like someone saying, uh, if you love me, right? But really what he's saying, since you love me, you'll live like this. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, because or therefore or since you have this encouragement in Christ, you have comfort, any comfort of love and participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy. Really, that could be defined as compassionate heart. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, same love, in full accord and with one mind. If you notice, he starts out this text with unity. He hits on unity here in the middle of the text. And at the end, he actually closes with unity. So a sign, a sign for us as citizens of Christ, is this idea of deep community, but more importantly, oneness. This idea of unity. And let me tell you something. This derails the church more than anything. This idea of disunity. And and, and the reality is, we're always trying to change somebody to be like us. Stop doing it. (laughs) There's only one of you. God threw away the mole when he created you, right? Don't try to change people. Only God can do that ultimately. And so even your own spouses or your kids, we're, we're doing trying to behavior modification. Now, it doesn't mean we don't correct, we don't address, we don't confront. But what it means is God is ultimately the only one that can change, right, people. And so this idea that we talk about this, there's some great incentives for unity. One is this idea of encouragement in Christ. 
This idea that we have Christ as our Savior. We have Christ as our Savior. We have God as our Father. He's a good Father. He's a loving Father. We have this comfort from love. This idea that we have this agape love and unconditional love. This idea of participation in the Spirit. In other words, we're given His Spirit as a guaranteeing the deposit what is to come. And so His Spirit is in our hearts, now gives us the ability to live out. And this idea of affection and sympathy, really this idea of a compassionate heart. And this great text, because it goes on to say, a full accord in one mind. This idea of accord really is this, this picture of maybe a symphony, right? Or, or a picture of harmony. My girls are, are beginning, um, we're kind of, they seem to have a passion for music. So one's learning the piano, the other one's learning the guitar, they're, they're getting voice lessons. And one of the most beautiful sounds in my house is this idea of when they sing together. And some of you guys are musicians, you know what I'm talking about, or maybe you just enjoy music. The best thing you can play is your um, Spotify. But anyway, um, is this, this idea of harmony, right? And, and there's something about when they sing individually, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's beautiful. But when they sing together, my heart just rejoices. Why? Because it's much more beautiful. It's much more full, right? And so this idea of understanding, this is what Paul is saying. This idea of full accord, this idea of one-mindedness, and knowing that as we strive with God, as we strive with each other, this is this joy-filled gospel unity. There is a joy-filled gospel unity when this happens. And so this idea of same mentality, Christ-like humility, sensitivity towards others' needs. John Stout says this, that at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So he says here, put on this mind, this mindset of what? Humility of Christ-likeness. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. It's interesting. He doesn't say, don't think about yourself at all. He says, think about others as much as you think about yourself. I think about the, the verse where they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandments, right? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a guarantee that most of us are going to love ourselves, right? We get up, thank the Lord. Most of us took showers today. We brushed our teeth. We gargled, right? Put on deodorant. That's a good thing, right? We're glad because when you've been around middle schoolers and kids for a couple of weeks, sometimes that doesn't always happen. But um, so it's this, this idea that, we take care of ourselves, but we don't need to just take care of ourselves. We need to think about others as much as we think about ourselves, right? And so it's this idea of understanding other focus, not me focus. Now, what I've learned over the years is that I think the idea of humility is a mindset because it says put on the mind of Christ, but it's also these idea of habits. So I'm going I'm to have you write down some practical habits, if you will, or mindsets, if you will, of living a humble life. One is this, never lose your gratitude. We'll, we'll get to the end of the text and it talks about that, Paul mentions it. But never lose your gratitude. Gratitude is so important in life. You know, most of our problems, most of our crises that we consider our life are really first world problems, aren't they? Right? 
like where to go out to eat. Really? <laughs> I mean, you spend on one outside dinner than most people in the world probably spend in a couple months, right? And so never lose your gratitude. The second thing is this. Take the low place or take the, the low road. In other words, not, a, not in a negative sense, but in a, but in a positive sense. In other words, don't try to put yourself above. Take the idea of a servant, the idea of a slave, this idea of fighting for the bottom, not for the top. The third habit I would say is this. Keep your notebook open. And what does that mean? It means that we can always learn from anyone. If you close your notebook, that means you're done learning. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly trying to learn. In fact, I usually have to learn the things over and over and over again. If you're anything like me, you understand I have to keep on. It's like Groundhog Day. I just keep making the same mistakes many times. But it's important to understand we need to keep our notebook open. The fourth thing is this, to push others in the spotlight. In other words, those people that are humble tend not to worry about who gets the credit, right? They're, they're wanting to encourage others. They're wanting to coach others, right? You think about uh, a conversation that, that Jesus had with Peter. He says, hey, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. We understand that Jesus was talking about himself, but also knowing that he was speaking truth into Peter, that Peter is going to be one of the first leaders of the first century church that was about to birth. And so he always was encouraging Peter. He says, hey, Satan has come uh, to, to sift you, but don't worry, Peter, I prayed for you. So he's always building and telling people maybe what they don't even believe about themselves. And so that's so important. And the other thing is this idea of um, to confess their sins before they address someone else's sins. And so understanding that we have things in our own eye, and as Jesus said, to take out the plank in your eye before you try to remove the speck and someone else's. That's why we, we talk over and over and over here again, but we're all broken, and we all leak out in different ways, and, and none of us here have arrived, and none of us will arrive. We have Christ as the one who has arrived. He's the one who's made us right before God, not ourselves, and so it's this picture of humility, again, taking the low road, and then he goes on to say this in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let me ask you something. Do you, do you go around getting, 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 or giving, giving, giving? What do you do in life? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Love gives. Love doesn't take. So, let me ask you this, is your, is your mindset on that in your community that you want to give, 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 not take, take, take? How about in your workplace? How about in your home? How about with your kids, classmates? How about with your teammates? Is this idea of serving or getting? Is this idea, are you known for your humility and compassion? See, many of us, especially men, we view this idea of humility as a weakness, and it's not. It's strength under control, Right? Jesus says he could, have, he could have called down legions of angels, right? And what he chose, he chose to humble himself as a servant, ultimately as a sacrifice for me and for you. So we see this, this mentality of humbling ourselves and this humility of Christ. And see, understanding this, when Christ emptied himself, Christ refused to hold on to his divine rights prerogatives. 
In other words, he veiled his de- uh, deity. He did not void his deity. He added huma- humanity. He didn't surrender deity. There's never been a time that Jesus didn't exist. There's never been a time that Jesus didn't exist. So don't get confused in this text that somehow Jesus wasn't there and now he's there, right? Jesus is God. We see in John 1, John, the word was God. The word was there. It's always been. Jesus is fully God and fully man. In fact, it goes on to say in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, let me read this. 1 Corinthians 15 in verses uh, 45 through 48 says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is not the, uh, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So it's this idea of this, that God was fully God. I mean, Jesus is fully God, and he was fully man. In fact, he was, the scriptures describe him as the second Adam. So what is the difference? What's the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam in Christ? One, Adam was made in the image of God. Christ was and is the very essence of God. Adam wanted to be like God. Christ took on the likeness of man. Adam wanted to be exalted. Christ emptied himself. Adam was discontent with being God's servant. Christ assumed the form of a slave. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in simple disobedience. Christ humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation. Christ overcame temptation and crushed the enemy's head, the tempter's head. Adam brought the curse on the world. Christ took the curse for the world. Adam was condemned in disgrace. Christ was exalted by the Father. So we see Jesus being the complete work. He is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Imagine an illustration I read recently in a book where it talks about this idea of this African chief. And in the village, he was the strongest man. He also had to traditionally wear a headdress. And with that headdress, he also had this royal robe that he wore. And what happened in, a, in his, in his uh, village there is someone went to go um, get water, and the gentleman fell in this deep well. And he fell in this deep well. He broke his leg. And there was no way to get him out. No one had the strength to get him out. So the, so the, the uh, chief was summoned, and when he was summoned, he saw the condition of this man. And he took off his robe, he took off his headdress, and laid it aside. And got down in the well and climbed down and carried him out. This is a picture of Jesus. Jesus set aside all the benefits, if you will, of divinity to bring, wrap himself in humanity. Think about this. Think about the fact that he came as a baby, Emmanuel, God with us. How vulnerable is a baby? A baby is the most vulnerable thing I can think of. I mean, think about it this way. When you, you're in the animal kingdom, and, and let's say you were born as a gazelle, okay, and you have to get up on your feet within a matter of a few minutes, and you have to run. Why? Because there's things called lions that want to eat you, right? I mean, for months, a baby has to be fed, has to be diapers changed, 
I mean, has to be taken care of. I mean, it just has to be completely dependent on parents. Think about it. God wrapped himself in flesh and blood. He's called the incarnation of Christ. And he came and dwelt among us so he could be the Passover lamb for me and for you. So he could be the second Adam to complete what the first Adam did not do. And this is what we see because what Jesus did, he's exalted. See, to confess Jesus as Lord in the first century church meant that Caesar was not Lord. This meant definitely persecution and maybe even death. See, we need to understand there are lords in our life. We may not have to bow to a king and pledge allegiance if not be killed, but there's things that have allegiance in our life. Okay, materialism right? Success at the job, whatever it may be that we put in that lordship position that we have to crucify, we have to allow God to put Christ ahead of this. And most of that involves us humbling ourselves before an almighty God, understanding that he has a plan and a purpose, and that's to advance his kingdom, make disciples. And that's so much of that has to be worked out through us when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, verses 12 through 14 talks about this idea of working out. See, it doesn't say work for our salvation, but it says work out our salvation. So what does that really mean? It really simply means to follow the example of Christ. That's so hard, though. It sounds so simple, but it's so hard. Why? Because we have to die to ourselves. We have to humble ourselves. In other words, we can work out our salvation because God is at work in us. The Holy Spirit is now in us, and because it's in, He is in us, okay, now we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Again, not working for our salvation, but to work out. Again, it goes back to that mentality of, of an athlete. You're given muscles, right? And your muscles can either grow or they can shrink, right? In my case, they're shrinking and my belly's growing. But it happens to the best of us, right? Well, primarily because I don't work out on a regular basis. I don't eat right, okay? Now, it doesn't mean that's always the case, but we're given muscles to grow, now, we're given this faith, right? We're given the spirit of the living God in us, but we also have this obligation, both demonstration of our faith, right? I mean, I'm sorry, declaration of our faith, but it's also this idea of demonstration where James talks about, right? Faith without works is dead. And so it's this, this picture of understanding that we have to work out our faith. We have to put in practice these things that are disciplined in our life. In fact, he talks about this in the latter part of this text holding fast to the word of life, right? Holding to, on to God, holding on to his word, holding on to prayer, holding on to the, the, the idea of authentic community within the body, of striving in Christ, striving with one another. This is what Paul is challenging us to do. So he goes on to say in verses 14 through 16, to shine, listen, shine, and avoid grumbling and arguing. Yes, it is quiet in here. <laughs> avoid grumbling and arguing. That's tough. I'll just tell you, right? I mean, how many times do we hear about bodies of faith causing a split because somebody's worried about something that's insignificant, something that's not gospel-centered, something that has to do with preference, not obedience to God's word, Right? Why? Because they want to argue and complain. In fact, if you look back at the Israelites, what kept them out of the promised land? 
It was their attitude. It was their grumbling. It was their complaining. I think many times in our own lives, what keeps us out of, if you will, God's promised land, the place where he wants to take us in our maturity and faith, is many times our own attitude, our grumbling and our complaining. Our attitude that we want, again, where Paul talks about, we have to die to self, right? We have to fight for the bottom, not for the top. We have to fight for unity. We have to lay aside our preferences. And I, I love uh, this, this illustration that John Newton talks about. He's a pastor in the uh, 1700s, and he lived to the early 1800s. But he, he describes um, basically this idea of a, a guy uh, getting this great inheritance or a great estate. And he's in a carriage on his way to New York City to receive this. And just a mile away, he, his carriage breaks down. And he has to walk the rest of the way. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine? You think this guy would be, oh, man, my, my carriage. I can't believe it broke down. I did it, did it, did He would still be joy-filled. Why? Because he's going to receive a great inheritance. He's, he's going to receive this, this great estate. And this is like us in our lives. We're going to face trials, but this is not our home, Right? This is a place where we're going to get to be with Jesus forever, where he rules and reigns. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And so this idea that we get to shine even in difficult times in this world. And then ultimately in verses 17 through 18, he talks about this idea of glad and rejoice. This gladness and rejoice. And we're talking about it later in Philippians, but Philippians 4.11 touches on this. When Paul talks about this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then if you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to read a text there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. It says this. This is Paul's life. This is a little snapshot of all that he went through in his journey of faith. Now think about this. We, we get upset that we have to Maybe come to church and the air conditioner is not quite as cool. Or, you know, if a bad storm rolls up um, on Sunday morning right at 9 o'clock, we're going to decide to stay at home. But listen to Paul, okay? Listen to Paul. Five times I received at the hands of the Jew, Jews the 40 lashes less one. By the way, the reason they did that, they thought 40 slashes would kill a man. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night. In a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. Listen about you, but I have not went through any of those things, right? And think about it. Paul still had this abiding joy. Why? This is the key. Gratefulness and contentment bring gladness and joy. It's not the other way around. Gratefulness and contentment bring gladness and joy. Listen, the reason many of us don't have joy in our hearts, we don't have gladness, is because we've lost our gratefulness, we've lost our contentment. And really in life, what do you really need? Well, most importantly, we need a Jesus, right? But then after that, physically, very little, to be honest, but it only get upset because what we pray for, we pray with wrong motives, and then when we don't get it, as James says, we get upset, right? So let me ask you, I'm just asking you this big question this morning as we close. Are you living in the light of the truth that Christ is returning one day and that he's looking for his humble servants 
striving for unity, not grumbling, not arguing, but shining as sacrificial offerings of joy. See, Jesus is coming, and I want my banner to be clear, and I hope your banner is clear, that God is calling us to live sacrificial life for the joy set before us. Just as Jesus endured the cross, God is calling us to live a sac sacrificial life. Will you stand? There's going to be people here this morning. If you want to be prayed with or prayed for, if you want to know more about our church or come to faith in Christ or get baptized, we, we're going to have people here and we, we want to be able to pray with you, encourage you, do whatever we can to spur you toward love and good deeds. Good deeds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for this day. Thank you for your many, many blessings. God, you're so good. You're so gracious to us. God, this text is an incredible text. It's a reminder of what you've done for us through your son. And God, I pray that we will not take lightly the gift of grace. We will not take lightly the work of Jesus. We will not take lightly the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. And just as he was an example for us on how to live our lives, God, that we would live out as an example. We would want to spur each other toward love and good deeds, not by somehow elevating ourselves, but, God, fighting for the bottom, wanting to be servants, wanting to outdo each other toward love and good deeds, and in this attitude of humility, not wanting to get our way, but what is your will, what is your plan, seeking your face with humility, God, killing our pride, really crucifying our flesh. God, we need you, and God, we cannot do that in our own strength. God, would you teach us more about who you are and what you want us to be? In Jesus' name, amen.